the shit you love. The podcast of the series of the graphic novel of the album where I get to crap on about anything I like. It's 1980. Monash University, Menzies Building, 9th floor. Elizabethan English tutor Dr Philip Nash gazes out the window at the middle distance as he discourses at length about the meter in Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. Behind him in the cramped office sit eight first-year literature students. Nash's antiquated electric jug boils, rendering his emotive whisper completely inaudible. The students sit watching him mouth silently. The kettle's rattling tumescence finally dissipates to leave us with a silence that stretches across the Gobi Desert. Naish, still gazing out the window. Any thoughts about Spencer's use of arboreal imagery? No one answers. Naish is still gazing out the window. He doesn't appear to have noticed the lack of answer or the pause, which is now stretched to breaking point. One of the students gets up and mumbles apologetically about having a lecture to get to. Naish does not reply, still gazing out the window. One by one, the class files out. Outside, in the corridor, two students are walking from Naish's tutorial. One is called Melanie. She is fiendishly attractive, with an air of casual sophistication, presumably because she lives in St Kilda. The other one is me. I feel I have been making strong inroads with Melanie due to my refreshing irreverence about literature, i.e. all I read before Year 12 was books on 70s English soccer. Me. Phew, that was challenging. Melanie. I know. Me. I wonder if he thinks we're still there. Melanie. Mind you, it's beautiful poetry, the Fairy Queen, don't you think? I have a momentary vision. Edmund Spencer, lace ruffles exploding from his collar, is bending down to pick up the ball from the fetid mud at Moravan Oval. Six foot six and Kilda Ruckman Carl Dittrich, known as the Shadow, is flying towards him, elbow flexed. Me. So, uh, what are you doing tonight? Melanie, with a hint of dismissively dropped bombshell. I'm seeing Hunters and Collectors. Me. Cool. Where's it playing? Carlton Movie House? Melanie. Coquetry sliding off her face. Oh, right. You've never heard of Hunters and Collectors. Melanie sees one of her ex-private school friends, Lucretia, across the lawn and is gone in a squealing instant. The one constant throughout the many different false starts of my short music career to this point was that me and my friends were just not cool enough. In the last episode, I called it the treehouse syndrome. The cool kids are playing up in the treehouse and they're not giving you the password. Of course, you're probably still scratching your head going, hang on, hunters and collectors, the hunters and collectors the blue-collar everyman who trudge their way through the viscous sump oil that is Holy Grail before every single AFL grand final? Yep, one and the same. There was a time, dear listener, 
when this group, named after a song by the German experimental ensemble Can, in itself one of Rock's premier treehouse attractions, were it and a fucking bit with the inner city cognoscenti. They played interminable workouts on a single grim riff. They had a guy who played gas cylinder and a sullen-looking keyboardist whose qualification for the role seemed to be that he studied film at Swinburne, playing not so much keyboards as this noise. This was a band I'd never heard of, playing venues I didn't know about in suburbs I never visited. Welcome, listener, to the world of post-punk in inner-city early 80s Melbourne. This is Only the Shit You Love, the podcast, where I wax nostalgically about my sad-ass youth. Nostalgia is the theme of this week's episode of Only the Shit You Love, the web series, Greta the Garbo. Have you met a Greta the Garbo in your life? You occasionally read about people who devote themselves to a period in history with their amazing collections of retro kitsch, or their house decorated completely in the Art Deco style. And of course, Melbourne has some personalities who are the living embodiment of this. The character of Greta is loosely based on the lovely Emma Peel, Melbourne DJ, radio PBS legend and retro icon. Her nom de plume, of course, the name of Diana Riggs' fabulous 60s character in The Avengers. I've only met Emma once, but after I met her, she inspired in me a character who has this enormous sanctuary in her heart for things that have been consigned by fashion's fickle finger to history's bric-a-brac bin. I also know her partner, Danny Walsh, he of the Danny Walsh Band, as in B-A-N-N-E-D. Now that's a great name for a B-A-N-D. And where Emma has the 60s vibe going... Danny gets about like he's hopped out of Doctor Who's TARDIS when Doctor Who was played by William Pertwee. Okay, I mean the 70s. Emma and Danny make such a fabulous-looking couple. It's hard not to be impressed by their style and devotion to detail. I'm sure there are some people out there who view this kind of behaviour as obsessive and cute in that condescending kind of way. But I think there's nothing remotely worth condescending about people who seem to live in another era or who spend all their life collecting plaster wombats or go bird watching, or, as in one of my favourite all-time British shows called The Detectorists, looking for buried treasure. It's that good old word that seems to have dropped out of the dickhead's lexicon, comfort zone a subject I banged on about 15 years ago in a song called Back to Mine. Let me tell you why I'm going back to mine. Because that's my comfort zone. Don't you love that phrase? I'm going to push you around. And if you complain, that's just you not wanting to get out of your comfort zone. The comfort zone. Everybody's got one. Some of us display it more overtly, like Emma and Danny. Some of us only get it out when no one's around. But I think it's vital and part of being a healthy human being. Your comfort zone is the place where you get to have your own little bit of control over a world that is increasingly out of your control. Because that's what we all crave, apart from love, 
It's the feeling that somewhere, however big or small, this is your territory where you control your own destiny. Early adopters, like Paul Janoskas, who we met in the previous episode, who are clearly stimulated by change, would often make other people feel inferior by using the phrase, I like stepping out of my comfort zone. But don't you see? Change is your fucking comfort zone, pal. You're not stepping out of it, you're stepping into it. So, dear listener, if you have a quirk, an eccentricity, a collection of something, a so-called nerdish interest in something, and it does two things, one, makes you happy, and two, makes no one unhappy, then I say to you, all strength to your arm. I drink a toast to you. Never let anyone make you feel patronised. The world is out of everyone's control. Find your spot, your sanctuary, and celebrate it. I've got lots of them. Nostalgia for previous eras in music is but one. The growth of retro as a concept, particularly as expressed in music and fashion, which, let's face it, are so often the same thing, has been fabulously chronicled by Simon Reynolds in his excellent book, Retromania. I recommend it if reading about music is your comfort zone. In the early 2000s, we seem to be going through a short-lived phase of retro post-punk. Try working that phrase out. Bands like Interpol, Futureheads, British Sea Power and the whole electro-clash movement seem to be taking that short period between about 78 and 1982 as their inspiration. And boy, did that make me feel fucking old. Because I was there the first time. Front row seat, 18 with a bullet, right there, living and breathing music at the height of my musical snob phase between the years 1978 and 1982. We're going to start this happy vibes right from the root. Yeah. Post-punk, as it's now labelled, was a fertile, or futile, depending on which way you want to view it, phase of music mainly emanating out of England, where I continued to draw my inspiration, presumably taking the DIY ideals of punk, including an absolute flood of independent record labels starting up, post-punk also, as the name implies, was a bit postmodernist in that it used the spirit of punk to reimagine the existing styles of music, perhaps jazz, funk, dub reggae, or dare I say it, the experimentation embodied by your Floyds and your King Crimsons, and make it sound new and fresh. It certainly had arty written all over it. There was still a lot of rudimentary playing, still an intifada against guitar solos, but now... It wasn't about getting back to raw basics. It was anything goes. So here in Melbourne, it was naturally an inner-city, snooty, cliquey combination of various bands, with the Crystal Ballroom in St Kilda at its epicentre, but also the rather boffinesque Clifton Hill Collective and the officially titled Little Band Scene in North Fitzroy, plus, of course, the other bands that don't fit into my convenient historian's brush with which you tar everybody simultaneously. There was, however, a united sense 
that these bands existed in a completely separate world, entirely shut off from the mainstream. Tiny venues, independent record labels, Triple R, PBS and 3CR, no Countdown or even Sounds Unlimited or Night Moves coverage, precious little column space in the two music papers, which were RAM, as in Rock Australia magazine, or our local version, Duke. Naturally, the big bananas of the scene were our old mate, His Royal Highness Nick Cave, whose punk band The Boys Next Door had renamed themselves The Birthday Party. This was not, I presume, because they liked to do kids' functions, the Harold Pinter play of the same name, which I read while trying to impress Melanie at Monash University, was most likely a reference point. From straightforward punk songs, they now played fractured rhythms with squalling guitar and snatches of dissonant woodwind. There were clearly a few Perubu and pop group records in Nick's Bohemian St Kilda bedsit. By the way, I do need to point out that as much as I love picking on Nick Cave, I really liked the birthday party at that time. Post-punk was right up my alley, dear listener. The spirit of punk combined with the wankiness of prog. I'm right in there, fella. The birthday party were not universally liked. What? I hear you ask. Nick Cave not liked? Yep. In 1979, we went to a concert at Festival Hall. Headline acts were Cold Chisel and The Angels. I rather liked The Angels back then, but also there were other interesting bands on the bill, including Flowers, who were at that point still pre-fame, pre-Icehouse, and were sort of a Bowie Lou Reed tribute act mixed with a little Ultravox and a little Punk. They were actually quite good. I saw them at the Sandown Park Hotel on a night where a woman chucked a beer jug at a bouncer. Ah, Springvale. Anyway, where was I? Oh yes, Festival Hall, Cold Chisel and the Angels. And the first band on the bill was The Birthday Party, and their opening song was Friend Catcher. There's your confronting post-punk art in Excelsis. And within a few minutes, Festival Hall, jockers without a suburban bogans, not that we used the term at the time, started booing. It was a few thousand people simultaneously yelling, what the fuck is this shit? The noise was frightening, but also one of the most hilarious moments of my entire concert-going history. I rather liked the birthday party for it, soldiering on in the face of an entire planet calling them wankers. Oh, how the tide would turn in the future. Anyway, the birthday party soon fucked off to England, and back home, the most snooty band of the very snooty post-punk scene was Hunters and Collectors, as I mentioned earlier. But then, there are all these other experimental bands with equal cred going about making barely listenable music that you had to treat like the Emperor's new clothes. Whirly World, featuring our mate Ollie Olsen. 
plays with marionettes featuring Crowded House's Nick Seymour and a chap called Hugo Race, who'll get his own special segment in a later episode. People with chairs up their noses, cough, 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 and so on and so on. My favourite two were part of the scene but not nearly as pompous, The Models, who for one album were I think the most original, interesting band in the land. And Serious Young Insects. The thing for me that characterised post-punk music here, or in Old Blighty, was the almost complete absence of humour. It was very serious stuff, buddy, and woe betide anyone who comes along and says, I can see the Emperor's willy. At the time, I was a huge fan of it all. I read my NME religiously, listened to my Triple R, and with the money I was earning part-time at the Sandown Greyhounds and the Keysborough Hotel drive through bottle shop, seeing these bands at every chance I could. I even had a fashionable girlfriend. She and her sister looked fashionable, probably intimidatingly so on first impression, but were actually suburban girls who still lived at home, which is why I liked them. And just like the collectors and retro stylists and enthusiasts that I was praising earlier in this podcast, Christina and Hericlia had their own little idiosyncratic quirk. They idolised people in bands in a disarmingly innocent, Justin Bieberish kind of way. But these weren't teeny bopper idols. They were people like The Cure's Robert Smith, Ian McCulloch of Echo and the Bunnymen, Julian Cope of Teardrop Explodes, Susie Sue, and other untouchable icons of post-punk cool. They even had this incredible photo of Robert Smith, international rock star, Confucius-like figurehead of the worldwide goth movement, sitting there eating lunch in their East Bentley house. You had to blink when you saw it. It was like matter and antimatter coming together, like seeing Nick Cave put out the wheelie bins. But I can assure you there was no Photoshop back then and that photo was real. This was before I entered their scene and so I so desperately wished I'd been there. I would have brought my footy, persuaded Robert to come outside with me and get the girls to take a photo of us playing kick to kick in Warwick Street. But I did end up meeting Robert Smith. It was at the Old Melbourne Motor Inn on Elizabeth Street, once a fashionable accommodation for visiting rock stars. Robert Smith was touring with Susie and the Banshees, and after an interminable wait outside in the freezing cold, he came past the front door and, seeing the two girls, let them into the bar, along with a bunch of other girls tagging along who also had confronting art installations for hairstyles, Oh, and plus one bloke, me. We all piled into this banana lounge booth type arrangement. Robert Smith, six girls and me. Robert had a tequila sunrise in a long thin glass and he sat there with a glum look on his face staring wordlessly at the drink 
As if mesmerised by the tequila sunrise's inscrutable ability to change colour as it went up the glass. All the girls seemed to be waiting for Robert to speak, and apparently Robert had no intention of doing so. So, I thought I'd break the ice, so to speak. I mean, I was feeling pretty ridiculous by this point, and I thought maybe I could engage Bob with a bit of muso-like banter to interrupt the frostiness of the never-ending tableau of existential ennui. So, uh, Robert, that effect on Susie's voice, was it like a harmoniser? Pretty fucking impressive work from me there. Bit of the old tech-speak. That ought to raise Smithy from his inertia. Robert sat there in silence. Then, without taking his eyes off the tequila sunrise, almost as an afterthought, in a barely audible whisper went, Yeah. That was the beginning and end of my conversation with Robert Smith. This is fucking magnificent, I thought. I'd been pretty grumpy out there in the wind waiting, but now it was all worth it. A rock star behaving like a proper rock star. That's what you want out of life. I mean, if you were at the pisser next to Liam Gallagher and said to him, All right, Governor, and he didn't tell you to fuck off, it'd be pretty disappointing, wouldn't it? Tagging along with the girls, I got to meet a whole bunch of rock superstars. It was great fun. I missed out on Billy Idol, which I regret to this day. But I did meet two people who have remained in my all-time top ten. One was Ray Davies, whom I'll speak about later. The other was Chrissy Hind. Only the bits I love. Yes, it's time for another of my annoyingly brief snippets of greatness. Chrissy Hind, the slowest, most beautiful vibrato in rock history. I want to, but now. The Palais Theatre on St Kilda's waterfront is one of the national treasures of Melbourne showbiz architecture. It was built in 1927. It's the largest seated theatre in Australia. Um, It's been a concert venue for everyone from the Rolling Stones to the Bolshoi Ballet. And one afternoon in 1981, sitting on the Cavill Street footpath next to the open side door of the Palais, was Chrissy Hind. She was enjoying a bit of fresh air while inside the darkened venue, the rest of the pretenders and crew were sound-checking for that night's show. Chrissy Hind is from Akron, Ohio, and who knows, maybe it's having that slightly unglamorous origin, but she was the least affected rock star of all the rock stars I met during that little phase of my life, and it made me like her music even more. To me, Chrissy Hind embodied glamour, and the Pretenders were like a classic rock band preserved in glass, somehow timeless. There's a clip of the band performing Talk of the Town on some TV studio set, which looks kind of monochrome, and I love it. They look so wonderfully bored and yet rock starish. She's there with the leather pants, coal eyeliner and fringe, pouting as only she could at the camera. It felt like watching a 60s film clip, But what made it not like the 60s was that she was in charge. 
the guitar-wielding songwriter, not the pretty puppet. The band was good. I've already mentioned James Honeyman Scott's perfect guitar playing, but Chrissy Hind made them great. Her lyrics were distinctive, full of longing and wistful observation. Like another of my later faves, Amy Mann. And all I can remember about meeting Chrissy Hind in person was the fact that she said, instead of doing a gig that night, she wished she could just sit in the bath in her hotel room and drink tea. Not a rock star behaving like a rock star, but better than that. Artists who don't follow trends are the ones who ultimately win my respect, and in this respect the pretenders were definitely not post-punk. Post-punk wore art on its sleeve and desperately wanted you to know it. Some of the most pretentious old crap imaginable. And into this heady soup of wankery came a new band, formed out of the ashes of the terminally doomed Tall Stories, a band with a meaningless, pointless, but vaguely arty name, I Can Run. I'll tell you more about them next time. You've been listening to Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. If you want to see the series or buy the music, go to campsite.bio forward slash Damien Cow DC. See you next time. <laughs>